I often think if you can have a single moment in every day that you feel genuinely happy, then you're probably fine, like regardless of anything else. This is the Telecom Electronic Beats podcast, the podcast for music, culture and the new now. Hey guys, welcome back to the Telecom Electronic Beats podcast. My name, Gesine Kühne. A pleasure to host this episode because we have a very talented, super nice guest today. His name is Alex Crossan, 26 years old from the island of Guernsey, a Grammy winner, a bit of a super producer at the moment. You might know him under his artist's name, Mura Massa. He started producing as a teenager. His music was picked up by the BBC's Radio One when he was just 18. Through constant work and obviously some talent, he was able to work with no less than Asa Brocky and Damon Albarn from The Gorillas. But before I go too much into detail, let's listen to what Alex has to say. <laughs> Well, I welcome you, Alex Crossan, um, to this podcast episode. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> Good to have you. We meet, of course, uh, remotely. Um, where you are at at the moment? Uh, I'm in London. I'm in my lovely living room. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, not much to report. Just relaxing today. Okay. <laughs> I said Alex Crossan, but uh, you're better known as Mura Masa. That's a very German pronunciation I had here. Uh, excuse me for I that. I had to Google <laughs> if Mura Masa has any meaning. A cursed sword with de uh, demonic powers. Yeah. That's what I read. <laughs> Does your artist's name stem from um, like a different passion besides music? Um, originally, I think uh, just growing up as a teenager, I was kind of really into anime and Japanese video games and films and directors and things. And uh, Muramasa is uh, it's kind of a word from an old uh, Japanese kind of folklore tale. Um, I just thought it sounded cool. Maybe I wouldn't pick that name now, but it looks like I'm stuck with it. <laughs> <laughs> Would you pick a different um, name or just your own clear name, so to say? Uh, I don't know. I think everybody, uh, once they've had their artist name for long enough, they get kind of sick of it. I think it's natural, <laughs> but I don't <laughs> mind it. People seem to enjoy it. So that's what matters, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you say you had it long enough. Um, you're just sorry to say, 26 years old, <laughs> like you're still still quite young, but you started also very early in your life. Um, and you're about to release your third album, if I'm um, informed mm -hmm. correctly, Demon Time. Um, Demon Time, do you think in the same way, in a political way, or is it just, um, again, something playful you, you want to bring across? Uh, I think, interestingly, it's actually the opposite of that. Uh, Demon Time, I guess, in English, kind of refers to it's kind of like the witching hour, like midnight to 6am. Um, originally it's kind of like a, a pagan ritual term, I think demon time, uh, mm -hmm. when sort of like evil spirits are at their, their strongest, but it's kind of been adopted by pop culture to kind of mean, uh, the kind of mischievous time at a party where maybe you're a little bit too drunk or you're up to no good or, you know, doing something you shouldn't strictly be doing, but uh, having a lot of fun while you're doing it. And that was kind of uh, the motivation behind the name. But yeah, it's interesting that it could be read both ways, maybe. 
Yeah, maybe I just read too much into it because um, everything feels quite threatening at the moment, you know. Agreed, <laughs> so, agreed. Um, you're from Guernsey. Mm -hmm. Like, actually, I've never heard of it before. Thank you for broadening my, my uh, mind. <laughs> <laughs> It's an island closer to the French coast than to the English. Um, can you describe Guernsey, uh, Guernsey a bit so everyone else can make up their own mind about this little island? Yeah, of course. Um, you're definitely not the first person to say... Oh, Guernsey? Where's that? I've never heard of that. <laughs> it's a it's an extremely remote, tiny place. I mean, on the scale of things, I think the population now is about 70,000, which sounds like a lot of people, but I definitely probably know almost every person who lives there <laughs> or slash am related to them. It's a small island. It's uh, It's got a lot of French history, but it's kind of... Uh, You know, the queen is our queen. It's kind of a British territory in a way. I think the technical term is crown dependency, if anyone's really interested. Mm -hmm. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a tiny, beautiful place. It's very safe, um, lovely people. And yeah, I spent my entire childhood and a little sliver of my adult life there before uh, moving to England. Yeah. Yeah, what, what's there to do as a kid? I don't know. I, I think of it as one of those beautiful places where... Maybe compared to some other places, there isn't much to do, but actually that forces, you know, you have to get interested in things and find things to do. Uh, so there was a lot of sitting around in fields and having long conversations and maybe drinking a little bit too much and, you know, that sort of thing. There's a great, because uh, uh, it was occupied during World War II, so there's a lot of like history stuff there, uh, great beaches, some of the best beaches in the world, but uh Yeah, you kind of have to make your own fun, which I kind of enjoy. Mm -hmm. And you also got yourself into music by being bored, <laughs> I reckon. Yeah, I mean, doesn't everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how did you start out? I read that you were into all kinds of inst instruments. Um, and did you all learn it by yourself, like a self-taught? Yeah, um, I mean, for a short while, probably ages five to nine I uh took violin lessons and I didn't really much care for the academic side of music <laughs> I didn't have much patience for it so I dropped that and kind of started teaching myself guitar my dad was a bass guitar player he taught me a lot as well but yeah other than that it was just being from such a small place if you want to form a band it's always mm. like okay we have uh four guitarists a bassist and no drummer and no singer. So it's like, well, you know, I'll, I'll pick up the drums or I'll fill in the gap or whatever. And I think by doing that, I just learned a little bit of everything, which, uh, I definitely carried forward. I have to go back to the violin because mm. uh, that's a it's a very personal question. Um, did you also start out by um, just plugging <laughs> the violin I think so, yeah. in, in the very beginning? I think I had yeah. a music book where it was just plucking open strings yeah. to begin with. <laughs> Um, and you also played um, all kinds of music. It was not always like electronic bass like you do now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, mainly I was playing like heavy metal stuff and kind of mm -hmm. hardcore and punk. I'm actually wearing a, a Dark Throne t-shirt. I don't know if there's any Dark Throne fans listening, but <laughs> yeah, black metal, punk, those sorts of things. Um, I think those kinds of music scenes are more common in remote places i'm not sure why mm -hmm. but uh mm -hmm. yeah do you think there is a 
a similarity between metal and techno, for example. I hear that sometimes that people uh, compare that definitely with each other. Yeah. Funnily enough, the first time I kind of made that connection was uh, listening to a lot of like Southern hip hop and like uh, mm -hmm. kind of heavier rap stuff. Just kind of the emotion and sometimes the rage. And, you know, if you listen to Three Six Mafia or like someone like Lil Jon and the East Side Boys or something like this, it's like, it's very aggressive energy. And like, there's a lot of pent up emotion there and they're speaking to what's happening around them. And I think I kind of subconsciously maybe connected those dots uh, as a kid. But I mean, there's commonality in all music, but yeah, I find an odd number of uh, producers who kind of work in the same scene as me now are like closet uh, metalheads. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely know a couple too, um, techno producers that are definitely metalheads, so <laughs> for sure. Um, well, we're talking about electronic music already. Mm, when did you eventually change your, yeah, your music style, your likings? Mm. I remember quite vividly being a teenager and hearing uh, James Blake's first album. He'd either won or been nominated for some sort of BBC radio award. I heard it and I didn't really like it. I couldn't understand it. I had no point of reference. I was like, why is this guy making all these crazy decisions? Why is it so minimal? Like... Where's the reverb? Why the odd chords, you know? I found myself going back to it like a lot and uh, just sort of fell in love with the the digital sound of it and the, the minimalism and the kind of... Uh, it's almost like he's winking at the audience sometimes with like how little there is going on. And that was the kind of start of my journey into learning about UK electronic music and kind of where he had got his influence from, the kind of post-dubstep scene people like Mount Kimby and Fortet um, going on to learn about like hyperdub records and like early XL records and kind of plunging the depths and kind of trying to do research on it almost. It felt like a sort of assignment where it was like, okay, I have no uh, local reference point as to what these guys are talking about uh, in their music. So yeah, I just became super interested in that. I think at the same time, like Skrillex was starting to really to take hold of the mainstream so the idea of electronic music being a, a kind of self-supporting art form was kind of entering the mainstream at that point yeah it's funny you mentioned uh the english scene you mentioned skrillex who is uh you from the us mm -hmm. if i remember correctly but it's a it's a very certain sound you're referring to um if you've looked just behind you towards the French coast or the mainland European coast, I think the the sound would have been a different mm. one. Um, how come you were so focused on the English sound and didn't go a bit broader maybe to like some German techno or French house and so mm. on? I mean, there's like so much, you know? I mean, that's a good question. I don't know if I really have a good answer for that. I mean, ev eventually <laughs> kind of the UK scene was my foot inside the door, but... Then I grew to learn about Daft Punk and kind of the seminal things that they did. And another huge influence was Gorillaz as well, which is, again, another kind of UK act. But I feel like Damon Albarn, he really pulls from a lot of world music and a lot of different places. And uh, that became something that was very influential and kind of attractive to me that you could sort of 
alchemize and uh, pull together a lot of different things to to create something new and interesting. And then you just downloaded Ableton and started producing? Or? <laughs> uh, I believe I started out on a program called Sony Acid uh, because I had read an interview with Burial where he said that that's what he was using. So I was like, okay, that must be the right one. But I think Sony Acid mm -hmm. isn't even really for making music. It's more of a sort of like audio recording, you know, maybe for something like this, a podcast or something. <laughs> and then quickly mm -hmm. graduated to Fruity Loops and kind of shopped around a bit. And Ableton is the one I ended up settling on, yeah. Um, how much time did you have to spend on Ableton to, to yeah, become quite familiar with it and and confident that there's something good you're doing there <laughs> i find it i find it when i look at it just a setup of course i've never spent so much time on it i find it so confusing yeah. i'd rather have like a keyboard here and something else there so i can relate to what's happening on the screen somehow mm. that's i think that's an interesting question about like limitation because all i really had available to me at the time was my cheap laptop you know i couldn't really afford mm -hmm. any music gear i had a very cheap knockoff ibanez guitar maybe a little like baby amp you know one of these like practice amps no sound card no microphone so i kind of had to learn how to create those things like inside of the computer yeah mm -hmm. ableton's interesting as well because i feel like the entry level for difficulty is quite high it's like quite a confusing thing to look at until you become familiar with it but after you find your feet with it a little bit you realize how intuitive it is and how many shortcuts there are for getting to like the good idea quicker I think but yeah it's uh it probably took me a good three or four years of doing it kind of every day after school But I wasn't doing that as some sort of like practicing grind, you know, like Rocky running up and down the stairs. I was doing it because I was interested in it and I really wanted to. Um, mm -hmm. Every day after school, um, how much did your school work suffer from that? <laughs> It's funny. I think if you looked at the data, probably my my school grades probably get progressively worse as I get better <laughs> at music, kind of culminating in me eventually dropping out of university to actually pursue music. So yeah, it definitely got to the point where that's what I was doing more. I still have bad dreams where I'm like, oh no, I don't have time to make music because I need to go to school. You know, <laughs> I think I was quite conflicted. <laughs> you did eventually move to uh, the UK when you were 18, mm -hmm. right? Was that something completely different from w what you were used to, even politically or from... Yeah, surroundings, of course, it was different because uh, there's so many more people and and Brighton was probably already more vivid than anything else in, in Guernsey, maybe. How did you cope with it? And yeah, what, what did it do to you? Um, it was interesting moving from Guernsey, which is, it's quite a religious place. It's quite conservative in its politics. It's Uh, old school would be the polite way of putting it. I mean, recently there's been lots of kind of liberal movement there, but growing up there was definitely a feeling of conservatism. And then moving to Brighton, which is basically the the left-wing liberal stronghold of the UK. It's like, you know, it's the only region that consistently votes for the Green Party in elections, mm -hmm. 
it was really interesting just having my eyes opened out to that way of thinking and kind of questioning assumptions I had made about creativity or my lifestyle or that kind of thing. And I think it's the beginning of a, a long journey of kind of enlightenment in a way. Um, and that definitely fueled my excitement for creativity and kind of discovery of, of new music as well. Was that um, because your music already got picked up um, that you made this step um, across the uh, channel and decided to go to the UK? No, it was, uh, I was going to university and I was studying uh, English literature and philosophy. I was doing a, a dual honors. No intention of becoming a musician or no, I wasn't going to even entertain the fact that maybe I could make a living uh, doing music. Yeah. But by the end of my first year at university, I mean, that whole time I'd been putting things on SoundCloud and kind of putting things online and stuff. By the end of that first year, I, I had a manager and a publishing deal. It just felt a bit more realistic to be able to chase that. You know, I was I was being able to make some money rather than being at uni and kind of being in loads of debt. So <laughs> mm. it kind of made sense at the time, yeah. Uh, you mentioned English literature. And uh, before we started the recording, you showed me the books under your <laughs> microphone. Is there anything interesting in literature there? Or? Uh, let's see. <laughs> there is a, uh, a Junji Ito novel. There's the Japan thing coming back again. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a really good book called Behave by a guy called uh, Robert Sapolsky, who's a lecturer at Stanford. He's like a neurobiology lecturer. That's a great book. Uh, underneath that is Frank Herbert's Dune, which I recently finished. <laughs> That's great. And then sitting right at the bottom is uh, two different books about uh, Andy Warhol's factory in New York, okay. <laughs> which I've been reading. So Okay, that's that's an interesting combination of books, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, would would that be a pretty much a good sum up of your uh, character, what you're interested in, uh, and so yeah, on? Yeah, I think that's actually a really accidentally it just happens to be quite a good cross section of the sort of things that I'm, <laughs> I'm into. Yeah. You just said before the um, after the literature, but I had to go back to the literature because that's um, super exciting. <laughs> um, you said you you got yourself a manager. And you got into the music business. But isn't that very scary as a younger person? Being so informed by the internet, how much shitty people are out there, <laughs> how dirty the music business can mm -hmm. be. Um, were you not afraid to, to go that step um, because of people trying to rip you off or whatsoever? Yeah, well, I think there's a few things at play there, which is... The manager who happened to reach out to me first, a guy called Sam Stubbings, who is still my manager, uh, is amazing. He's very morally upstanding, <laughs> aside from being a, a wonderful person and very, very good at his job. And he's kind of a tenured music industry veteran as well. So he has a really good understanding of the ins and outs of the music industry. But also, I think, growing up listening to a lot of Prince and reading a lot of Prince interviews and listening to Prince talk a lot. Uh, I think he's kind of one of the main proponents, especially early on of, of that subject of, well, who owns your masters and, you know, who's getting worked here? You know, what are you, are mm -hmm. you seeing the benefit of your, your hard work and your creativity and kind of having that influence at the back of my mind? I think I was always very cautious. And I think a lot of young people do get caught out because, 
somebody comes to them and says, hello, I'm giving you an opportunity to do what you love to make a living. And at that point, you know, you say that to anybody, they'll, they will jump at the chance. Um, so it's difficult to get that balance of like, you know, seizing opportunity and doing it the right way. But uh, mm. more than all, I think I just got very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, congrats to that. Well, thank you, yeah. <laughs> um, in an interview, I've read uh, that coming to Brighton was super important to you. Mm -hmm. um, you already mentioned that it was like the complete opposite of uh Guernsey being so conservative, um, religious and so on, and Brighton being for, forward, green, mm. uh, left wing and so on. But I think you also encountered something called club scene there. Um, <laughs> yeah, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember your first time in a club? I mean, I remember there's a venue underneath Brighton train station called the Green Door Store. And uh, mm -hmm. I wouldn't really say it's a club. There's sort of a dance floor. There's a venue room attached to a bar room. It's quite small venues, maybe 150, 200 people. I remember going in there and seeing that there was a DJ playing. And not only was there a DJ, but the DJ was playing music that A, I hadn't heard. And B, I was really enjoying and wanted to know more about. And that was a new experience for me. I mean, the, the club experience in Guernsey when I was growing up, was limited to one place and it was called Barbados Beach Club and it was kind of the groundhog day of clubs. You would go there every weekend because it was the only place that was open until one or whatever and they would play the same, you know, 10 or 12 songs every week. So I definitely have a vivid memory of experiencing that and bizarrely having an interaction with the, the DJ where he was playing some of my music and I was starting to feel a sense of belonging where it was like, okay, mm -hmm. so the music that I'm making belongs in a room like this. And yeah, I ended up doing my, my first gig as Miramasa at the Green Door Store. <laughs> so very formative and yeah, super important and very different for me at the time. And do you still uh, enjoy going to clubs or don't you have time for that? <laughs> I mean, I was never like a... A super hard club guy. I really like being at home. I like being comfortable. I don't like being in big, big groups of people. <laughs> But if it's the right person playing or it's the right people going out, maybe I'll I'll join them. One person I always want to go out and see is uh, Corliss. He's a really incredible DJ. There's another guy called James Messiah. He's an incredible DJ. Yeah, or friends, you know, who I want to support. Things like that. I'm definitely not going out for the sake of it or because I'm desperate to feel some kind of club elation. <laughs> yeah, but but don't you think it's also somehow um, inspirational? Yes, it, it really can be. And I think it's an important piece of the puzzle in electronic music is understanding the relationship that those people in the club have to the music and Mm -hmm. the kind of feelings that that music can create, the experiences, the memories. And yeah, it's important to have that a little bit. But I think nowadays there's like a weird thing that's happened because of the access that the internet gives us. Mm -hmm. There's kind of time capsules and little snippets of information everywhere and you can kind of get a sense of that feeling without even having to set foot in a club, which I was kind of forced to do earlier when I was learning about those things remotely kind of through a... A telescope 
<laughs> um, did you ever experience any clubs outside of the UK since you're not a big club goer? Uh, yeah, I've been to I've been to a few clubs probably in every country, definitely in every continent. <laughs> Is there a different vibe, different sound, different inspiration or something like that? Definitely. I think it really depends where you go. But in the UK, I would say the majority of club culture revolves around the experience itself, the kind of the, the binge drinking, the substance, whatever it is. Whereas in a lot of other places, particularly in Europe, revolves much more around the music and kind of mm -hmm. there's a lot more of a knowing audience kind of silently judging what the DJ is doing or sort of an interesting thing that might be happening, particularly in Berlin, I have to say. <laughs> That's like <laughs> Very true. Techno, is, <laughs> techno is such a simple form that, Every slight difference uh, is very noticeable, isn't it? So, mm. but yeah, it's been it's been interesting, kind of comparing <laughs> the experiences that people have. Yeah, apart from being like this typical bedroom producer in a small setup, mm -hmm. um, connecting through SoundCloud, and then becoming a young lad uh, with a manager and putting out the music, you uh, eventually connected with ASAP Rocky and Damon Albarn, mm -hmm. and they're big names. Uh, how How did you do that? How did the contact <laughs> happen? How did that happen? I think I owe a lot to ASAP Rocky particularly because I think he was the first kind of person with that kind of power and influence and kind of AAA status who uh, gave me a platform really and said, I trust you enough, you know, to put my name to this. And after that, a lot more things kind of fell into place, like... I would have been cautiously reaching out to all sorts of people just on the off chance that they would get back to me. But after that happened with Rocky, some of those questions started getting answered. And even if it was no, it was just like, I felt a lot more seen after that. So I guess the journey is just making the music that you think is good and people hearing it? I don't know. Is that a good yeah. answer? <laughs> And with Damon Albarn, was there something like uh, a feeling of being starstruck because gorillas were such a big influence for you? Yeah, 100%. Um, <laughs> that was interesting because originally Damon had reached out to me asking me to work on some gorilla stuff for an album that he had upcoming. Uh And we kind of traded those things back and forth for a little bit. I remember the first time we met, I was sort of grilling him with questions and like, you know, rinsing <laughs> every moment out of it that I could get. And he sort of leaned over and he put his hand on my knee and he sort of looked me dead in the eyes and he was like, we will meet again. We will hang out again after this. And I was like, okay, I can calm down. Like, Bless his heart. Yeah, that was nice of him to see that. Um, But uh, yeah, through that sort of exchange of back and forthing on some of the gorilla stuff, I'd, I sent him a song that I had written and he really enjoyed it. And yeah, these things happen very quickly when they happen. I think there's a, there's a David Lynch quote where he's like, he's saying about being creative as like kind of fishing and you just have to sit by the, by the water. And as long as you're ready and poised for that, that moment then you might catch something i guess were you sometimes mocked in school because you spent so much time in in your bedroom making music no not really i mean 
I was sort of unmockable as a child. <laughs> I sort of, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be mocked, you know. Not okay. that I would retaliate, but it's just like, oh, you think it's lame that I do music? That's sad. That's sad for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I think people didn't bother. Yeah. <laughs> Where I wanted to go at is um, how people, yeah, receive your success back home. Mm. Do they want to be your friend? <laughs> well, I think when anybody goes through a transitionary period in their career, maybe to a more public facing point, There's definitely people who reach out and say, oh, do you remember me? We went to school together and all that stuff. And that's nice. Um, I don't feel I owe it to anyone to get back to them or whatever now that I'm suddenly interesting to them. Mm. And it's so fleeting as well. I might not be nearly as interesting in five years or whatever, <laughs> and then it'll go away. Do, do you sometimes have the feeling that it's actually hard to build friendship? I mean, you're, you're in your 20s. Like, um, it's... I think the time where friendship, new ones uh, come up because you're changing in life, you become an adult, you you you, you make a career. Mm. So, of course, your friends change from the ones you had from school. Mm. But there you are making so much music, uh, being involved in a, in a very difficult business, I guess, mm. a beautiful one, but also very difficult where a lot of flaky people are probably around and, and want to have this bit of fame through mm. you yeah i think it's a misunderstood industry as well a lot of people on the outside of it seem to think that it's some kind of luxury romp and like in a in in a way it is because you're doing something that you're passionate about and you're getting to express yourself uh to people but that's kind of where the luxury ends the rest of it is just a lot of not sleeping and being on planes and Uh, things like that but I've been thinking about this a lot recently about how when people meet me now you know new people in my life as you say they they see someone who has kind of had whatever accolade I have at the moment or whatever history that I've managed to build mm. and that feels different to me than the the person I recognize myself to be so yeah it's it's like you say it can be quite hard to form new connections with people but i think the answer to that problem is just being yourself and people aren't stupid you know they'll catch on very quickly to the fact that i'm not really trying to flaunt any success that i've managed to have or i'm not letting that define me as a person mm -hmm. i think also some degree of ignorance about just how well i'm doing really helps like, I honestly have no idea whether people care or not and I think that that separation is really healthy to be honest uh, who did you invite into the studio to work with you this time for the third album I mean the thing I always say is it starts with a love a single-sided love from my side to them I just am in <laughs> love with what they're doing or who they are or what they represent but most of all, the music that they're making. And then hopefully it grows from that point into uh, some kind of mutual love where it's like maybe it turns out that they're a fan of mine or they haven't heard of me, but they check me out and they're into it. Um, but yeah, it really starts with that first thing of I hear something in what that person's doing that is really interesting or that I feel that I can draw out a bit further or... 
I can challenge them or confront them to do something that they normally wouldn't do. Um, and that's the case with almost every guest on this, uh, this third album. Yeah, a lot of kind of returning cast as well, like Slow Tie, Pink Panthers, Shy Girl. Like these are people who I've produced songs for their records previously and kind of we're, we're firm friends at this point. So it's nice mm-hmm. to feel a little bit like a sort of a Tarantino or a Wes Anderson with this like recurring uh, revolving door cast, you know. How about you uh, and... The microphone singing <laughs> how's this relationship <laughs> what me singing myself me, yeah yeah uh i sung a lot on my second album uh on this album i was really i mean talking about warhol i was really interested in the kind of it's almost like a sinister kind of curatorial figure a shadowy kind of background puller of strings um I was interesting. I was interested in uh, inhabiting that a bit more and putting myself a little bit more to the back uh, and kind of creating a fun stage or a platform or a playground for people to inhabit this idea of kind of demon time and mischief and being up to no good. You know, after we've been denied fun for so long during the pandemic, uh, I mean, you know. No one really wants to hear about the pandemic, but we couldn't see each other for so long. We we couldn't go out. We couldn't be with each other. And I think the natural response to that musically is, okay, well, what's it going to sound like when we can, you know? And I think it's totally, totally fine and natural to still talk about it because it affected us all and it affected a whole lot um, the creation whether it is music or something else, but definitely um, it had a big impact on the productions. Mm-hmm. I didn't play a show for two years, you know. A lot of people stopped working in the studio with each other because, you know, it was untenable. At the start of the kind of pandemic, I was thinking a lot about, oh, well, maybe I should be looking inwards and having introspective moments in my music and maybe writing about solitude or isolation or yearning or things like this and then after sort of eight months of trying to do that and just feeling very upset with the whole thing (laughs) I just sort of realized that actually it's the opposite and kind of had this revelation where it was like really I should be using my imagination and thinking about well how good is it going to be when everyone can get back together again and how urgent is it going to feel and what are people going to want to dance to you know You're playing the Electronic Beats Festival in, in Zagreb. Mm-hmm. Um, what's important for you to play live? How's your setup pretty much? Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of artists on stage with their laptop and a chaos pad, for example, using the mixer or loop on the CDJ. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, you have so many feature artists. Is there a band? What does it look like and sound like? There's two main principles in the live show, which is personally... For me, I don't enjoy the process of the kind of knob turning and the kind of esoteric, no one's really sure what you're doing on stage, the mm-hmm. the button pressing. Um, and I think a lot of electronic music's kind of based in that. And uh, it works for a lot of people. But for me, I really want to be able to play instruments on stage and I want to entertain in that way. So what I'm doing is 
whatever the most uh, exciting part of the song at that point, I'm trying to play that. So whether it's drums or keys or guitar or, you know, whatever, I'm just trying to do moment to moment, like whatever the most mm-hmm. exciting thing is. So it turns into a bit of a one-man band jumping around <laughs> kind of thing. Okay. But the other key component, I think, is uh, a wonderful woman called Fliss who is my front woman, essentially. And she kind of inhabits the space that the featured artists would if they were there. And, you know, surprisingly, they can't all be there for every show. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, some... Obviously, yes. we We ask every single person I've worked with on a record for every single show, like, oh, do you happen to be here on this day? Really? Yeah, just in case. <laughs> That's cool. And you'd be surprised how many times it happens where it's like, oh, I'm playing that festival as well. Like, or, oh, Slow Tide just happens to be here. You can come out mm-hmm. for that song. So I'm doing that wherever I can. But in the meantime, Fliss is an incredibly singular talent. I mean, it's it's cruel to ask someone to become ASAP Rocky and then perhaps <laughs> in the next song, you know, suddenly become Christine of the Queens or... <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know, Pink Pantheress or whoever it is. Um, but Fliss is more than up for the task and she carries the weight of that kind of, that front woman burden. And to Mm. me, that seems the most interesting way to perform the music. I have to go back to your sound and playing (laughs) one more time because... I listened to your older stuff because there's no not so much to listen. I mean, there are a couple of songs out from the new album, but still. Mm. Um, what I realized was lots of steel drums and kalimbas. Mm-hmm. And I'm a huge fan of steel drum, actually. that's I think that's why it, it rang my ear so much. Mm-hmm. Mm. What about the sound intrigues you so much or does it still intrigue you or not so much anymore? That's a good question. Um, the only reason it wouldn't intrigue me so much anymore, those specific sounds, is maybe because of their sort of presence in the the mainstream since I made some of those early records. Not that I was the first person to use them or anything, but <laughs> no, that's true. I think in electronic <laughs> music, you had this advent of kind of I hate this term, but tropical house. It just uh, it mm. sounds horrible to me. But anyway, that that whole thing happened. I think what I really love about those sounds is the combination of melody and percussion. It's kind of both things happening at once. You're getting rhythm and polyrhythm and also melody and harmony kind of all in one. Uh, and I like the multi-functional kind of idea of that. Um, but there's lots of percussive instruments that uh, are harmonic as well. You know. Well, since we just talked about the festival... Um And your setup and your work on the stage, that sounds like a lot. <laughs> Do you still have the time to enjoy a festival in whole or is there no time for you or maybe no strength for it because you're exhausted? <laughs> yeah, I tend to be quite preoccupied before the show. I kind of want to sit quietly and because I'm quite an anxious person. I just kind of want to sit in the dressing room and relax for a second before I go on. Then I'm trying to have the best experience on stage as possible without getting too nervous there. And then I'm coming off stage and maybe trying to calm down a little bit. <laughs> But then after that all being said and done, 
I do like going out and walking around a festival and kind of getting an idea for who the people are who are at the festival and what kind of music they're really excited about or who's playing at the festival mm. that the kids really want to go and see. Um, I think that's super interesting. It's similar to what I said about clubbing as well. It's like if there's an act playing that day that I really, really want to see, I'll I'll make the sacrifice and the journey go out. Do you have a favorite festival? I think Primavera, particularly in Barcelona, is really amazing. I'm not sure why. It's just feels like some kind of magic surrounding it. Maybe it's the time that they put it on. Like the headline act doesn't play until, what, 3 a.m., 4 a.m.? So I think there's an unspoken agreement that everybody is going to go all night, you know? <laughs> and I think yeah. that's, you have to be all in at that point. Uh, yeah, I love Primavera. I also really love uh, Club to Club in Italy. That's always a festival that I look at the lineup and I'm just like, I want to see every single person. Uh, that's a great festival. Is there an artist you recommend now for for all of us? Any artist? <laughs> okay. uh, let me, you know what I like to do in these situations is get my phone out and look at my sort of recently listened to. Uh, oh, there's an artist that I really, really have fallen in love with in the past couple of weeks. Uh, their name is Luke Mann. That's mm -hmm. L-O-U-K-E space M-A-N, Luke Mann. And uh, the album's called SD1. And it's just like a really amazing... I honestly don't know anything about this person, but it's electronic. It's kind of like, you know what? I'm not going to say anything about it. You should just <laughs> listen to it. <laughs> Why not have a, a music recommendation from an artist in our podcast episode? That's um, <laughs> something nice. So uh, we can connect after listening to our talk again via Luke Mann's music, for example. Exactly, you, know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you won a Grammy For a remix you did. Yes. <laughs> Do you want one for yourself, for your own production? Is that something that's on your checklist? Yes. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. It's like, I remember that day when I won that Grammy, I was talking to a producer called Ariel Reichstadt. Amazing. He did a lot of Vampire Weekend stuff. And, uh, and he was like, how do you feel, man? And I was like, it's great to win a Grammy. But I think I want the next one to be for uh, some original work. Like, don't yeah. get me wrong, super grateful. And he was like, yeah, I get it. And he was the only he was <laughs> the only person that night who, when I said that, he was like, I get you. That's a, that's a bold ambition. Because everyone else was like, what are you talking about? It's great to win and it doesn't matter what it's for. And I was like, yeah, but there is something to be said for I want something that's 100% original and and me mm -hmm. but i've been nominated for my own work a, a couple of times and yeah i, I don't that. think it's beyond the realms of possibility but also you know the grammys are not uh the the final measure of of good music maybe what is the final measure then i don't know uh maybe <laughs> the ability of people to fall in love with it <laughs> maybe mm. <laughs> but do you have the feeling that you one day will um, settle down from being a musician or is that not possible because that's something yeah, that's part of your persona? I think I'll always want to be involved in music, listening and making mm. and talking about whatever it is. I mean, I'm building a, I'm building a studio space at the moment. It's kind of like nine rooms 
with the intention of fostering more of a community that kind of isn't so much about my own stuff or <laughs> my own career uh, mm-hmm. and kind of getting more into this mindset of becoming a curatorial figure. I'll do music as long as people let me do music. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything else you wish for? I mean, b- besides a Grammy, something maybe outside of music? I don't know. I, I I often think if you can have a single moment in every day that you feel genuinely happy, then you're probably fine, like regardless of anything else. If you could just have a little moment, it doesn't have to even last long. That's fine. That's how I measure my day. <laughs> you seem kind of happy. I don't know if you put on a show, but you seem generally happy, actually. <laughs> oh, I'm just a really good... Uh, actor I'm miserable no I think <laughs> I was very depressed for a long time and kind of did a lot of work on how to not uh, be that uh, and it's nice that you say that I think people can see it well it's nice and I think very important also very bold of you that you said you have been depressed for such a long time it's a huge topic of uh, my life as mm. well and I think when you did your work or, or you're still doing work because it's it's an everyday job, to be honest, um, I think other people that might have suffered from same things actually see that if someone is generally happy yeah. or like content because you've come so far from a very dark time. Yeah, and I think maybe a lot of people listening probably relate to that feeling of like, you know what, I was really sad for a long time and maybe I'm not that sad anymore. And uh, Yeah. Yeah, so that's what I want, maybe. I want uh, I want for people to feel that. <laughs> well, the good thing is that you were so open about it because that helps so, so many that are still not daring to say something mm. because there's so much stigmatism out in society about depression and so on or just mental health mm. issues um, that it helps if someone who, who they might look up to or fan of mm. says, hey, I had my own problems because that does help to keep on working, I guess. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, not to plug my own album while we're talking about this, but I, I really think this this next album is a response to, to feeling like that and kind of being mm. sick of feeling like that and wanting to experience some joy and realizing that we deserve some joy after this kind of communal trauma that we've been through. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's, it's all heavily related. I think that's a very good closing point because we've come to that level of honesty <laughs> that I don't want to go into any superficial things anymore. I just want to say thank you so much um, for that really nice chat, for being open, funny and very lovely. Oh, wow. <laughs> You're making me so, blush. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> um I wish you all the best and maybe I see you one day in real. Yes, I really hope so. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Alex Crossan, a.k.a. Muramasa. His new album is called Demon Time, if you want to give it a listen. This podcast is called Electronic Beats Podcast. My name is Gesine Kühne. And if you haven't done it yet, please give us a follow and a like. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Take care of yourselves and see you somewhere on the dance floor. <laughs>